Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. It's your host, Sarah and Lori. And today we have the most special um, guest joining us. She is a mom of three rat dogs, and one of them is at the door growling for her. I can hear it right now. Um, And she's also my mom. Hi. Hello. Um, Everybody meet Sherry. We are having her on the podcast today to talk about me and to let Lori ask her a lot of questions. And this is probably going to be a trauma heavy episode. So for anyone listening, if you want or need that trigger warning. So yeah, mom, welcome. How do you feel about being here? I feel anxious and nervous, but also um, it's an opportunity to explicitly validate the things we've gone through over the years to get where we are now. Look at that that word, the big B word. That's some good language. Yeah, she's been learning a lot. Mm. Well, and that's where I kind of wanted to just like acknowledge up front. First of all, Sherry, every single person that comes on here, they say they're nervous and anxious, and that's totally normal. It'd be weird if you came on like, yeah, no, I'm I'm good to go. This has been my dream forever to be on this podcast. Um, but I think like a year and a half, a year and a bit ago, Sarah and I started this podcast and Sarah was like, nobody in my family knows I have BPD. And it was like a Sherry huge... knew, but we didn't talk about it. Right. Sorry. Yeah. So like, it was not a thing that was brought up at all in your family from my understanding. And so it's just absolutely amazing that you're here and that you're having these conversations now. And um, yeah, I'm just like, so thankful that you're here and that I finally get to meet you. Part of it too, is that like my own shame probably prevented me from bringing it up. I think mom and I mean, yeah, and dad too, although he doesn't talk verbally near as much about this kind of stuff, but like she would have had the dialogue with me when I was younger, but I didn't have the skills and she didn't know what I needed. And I had a ton of shame. So, um, it's been really cool to see us expand the last year for everybody listening. My mom was a public school educator is now a principal, um, for 35 years. No, about. 29. Okay. Close enough. And she, um, has a, she's notorious for crying. So if she cries, that's not, it's not abnormal. Nope. I think there's vulnerability in showing people that emotions exist in all of us and opening yourself up to being willing to cry in front of people creates opportunities to connect. Yes, Sherry. (laughs) That is so true. We we love criers around here. I can tell you, Sarah and I are both both criers. Um, so maybe let's start with just what childhood was like for yourself as a parent of a kid who we didn't know had borderline at the time, but probably exhibited some of the classic symptoms as a child, I would guess. When Sarah was very young, um, she was a person who had strong feelings, like those feelings were big from the very beginning of her life. Sarah didn't sleep through the night until she was four years old. And so from the very beginning, I realized that I needed to learn some skills to be able to better support her. Originally, like I tried to kind of quell Sarah and my husband got me a book and it was raising your strong willed child. And he said, you know, we want our daughter to be big. We want our daughter to have all of the emotions that she has, but we've got to help her find ways to navigate those feelings 
so that she can use them successfully in her life. So I've always known that those things were there. I just didn't have the understanding or skills to be able to support helping Sarah learn how to navigate that. Is it okay if I ask about that I wasn't your first pregnancy? So I, I, I have been doing a lot of like generational trauma and really trying to understand because my mom is like a mom for moms, dude. Like she is going to feed you the second you walk in this house and she is going to remember things about you. And she is going to like ask about what you're up to and she's going to root you on, right? Like when I was growing up, there would be Anytime you went to a grocery store, she would run into a student who was like, Miss Walker, I'm so excited to see you and hug you and tell you about my life. And that was really triggering to me when I was a kid because I didn't feel like I could attach to her the same way that I saw her students attached to her. And I have really had to dissect and wonder and ask about, like, I was my mom's first child, but not her first pregnancy. And you think about the fact that I didn't sleep through the night till I was four. And the memory that I've heard told to me is that like, you would stay up crying with me, like wanting me to sleep so bad. And I just wonder, like, was it hard to parent me when I was so hard to parent and you wanted a baby so bad? And there was these previous. I think so. I come from a family that has generations of trauma. And as a child, when my parents divorced, I felt that I didn't deserve to be alive, that I didn't deserve to be loved. And so I was always searching for love in my life to valid, to give myself meaning. So when I was 15 years old, I got pregnant. And, um, you know, uh, from that broken place, I thought having a baby would fill my life with love. And before I got too far along in the pregnancy, I realized I didn't want to be a 15-year-old like my mother and not finish high school. And um, so I aborted that pregnancy. And there has always been guilt and shame around that choice. And I think that that probably is a part of what Sarah's talking about the shame I felt in, you know, not following through with that. Well, see, and I thought we were going to talk about the miscarriage. I didn't know we were going to talk about the abortion. I lost, a, uh, I got pregnant and I was super excited to be pregnant when I was 26. And um, we celebrated that with joy. And then at about 12 weeks, um, I lost that, that pregnancy. And there was a lot of grief around that. But we got pregnant right away again with Sarah, and we were just so joyful to have Sarah. Yeah. So when I think about like, you know, here I am, this just fucking spitfire that's like, it doesn't matter how you're going to love me. I'm not going to let you love me. And she's like, but I've been waiting for you for 14 years. You know, like, I think that there has, and I've seen that in, um, our relationship over the years, like she has tried to love me so hard, but it's not been the way that I needed to receive love because it just wasn't. And I didn't know how to give that feedback and she didn't know how to change. And so there's been this like struggle of like, my mom's my best friend. I don't think there's anyone in the world. I love more than you. I write about you every day. Like you're my person, but it's this huge back and forth of trying to figure out how to love each other the way that we 
need to receive love. And it's super complicated. Trauma. Lots of it. Let me just, before we get into that, because so much of what you're saying reminds me so much of my relationship with my father, who also has really strong emotions and has, you know, just, yeah, lots. We're very similar in many ways. And I hear you, Sherry, talk about, you know, at 15, um, having a pregnancy and feeling like that might give you like all of the love you needed. And, um, obviously like a miscarriage and that grief will sit with you for a long time. And just wondering, do you kind of resonate with Sarah's strong emotions? Um, and do you see parts of her kind of reactions to things in yourself? As I was raised, there was still this kind of expectation that the woman was the quiet, supportive, making everything good. So I don't think that I've ever truly lived into what my true identity would have been if I had been empowered to be who I should have been as a child. As an adult, I definitely have really deep emotions, and I I see that part in close alignment with Sarah but I don't experience these huge swings that Sarah does. And I, I don't always understand how to process that. Yeah. Like it was so funny to me yesterday and this is just her way of checking in, which is still like weird to me because we haven't done this a lot and I haven't been around until the divorce. Right. I'm, I see you a lot more than I ever had, but yesterday or the day before she was like, how are you feeling? where are you at on your like spectrum? And I was like, I fuck, I don't know somewhere in the middle. Like, I'm like, I'm at, ba- I'm, I'm near baseline. And I wondered if she was like, this is baseline, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Oh God. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have that thought at all. I really was trying I'm trying to use all the things that I am learning about checking in with you because I do want to understand that's really all I was doing. Yeah. Well, and I can see that in your language that you're using. Um, Like that's amazing BPD language that you're trying, clearly trying to speak the same language um, as Sarah. And when you say like, I don't necessarily understand those big, big emotions, like neither do we. So don't feel like that's um, (laughs) separating you too much. Sometimes it feels like we're just kind of stuck in them and we can't really comprehend like where we're at on yeah. on those big ends of that spectrum she um, is very much a super feeler though like you do have big beautiful like emotions but yeah turn they're they're turned inward they're held in sometimes you know they're given to people like I use my emotional connections as ways to validate and um try to truly see people. So I do have the big feelings. I just, I don't express them, I think in the same ways. And yeah, you've given them to like thousands of students over the years. Yeah. That's probably what made you so good at what you did is that you understood where they were coming from and supported them regardless of how I'm sure how frustrating some of them are at times. (laughs) I don't know. I decided I wanted to be a teacher when I was in second grade because it was the first time that I felt deserving of love, you know, when a teacher just gave that unconditional love to me. I had never experienced that before. I'm so happy that you've been able to touch all the lives of your students because I can just tell based on how you talk about it that 
you've impacted so many people. You grew up Mormon, am I right? Yes. Okay. Um, Jack Mormon family. I don't know. If you know <laughs> I don't. Exact opposite of what like good healthy Mormons are. I believe Papa and Grandma never listened to this. Oh, you can cut that out. <laughs> I don't think they know what a podcast is. Anyway. Okay. So more Mormon in the like like technical sense, but not necessarily following. Oh, the following. drugs, the sex, yeah. babies, okay. the family secrets that are going to like live and die and never be. Yeah. So, so that's kind of where I wonder, like, is, is some of the, uh, I don't know how to say it. Like, sounds like there was some challenges in the family from the get-go and intergenerationally. So do you feel like that has impacted your mental health? And then in that the ment- your ability to work with um, Sarah and, and your son um, in terms of like their mental health? Well, I think that it's impacted everything in our lives. Like they're, you know, the grandfather's raping children and brothers raping sisters. And it's been a part of the trauma of our lives forever, but it hasn't, none of us ever learned how to, how to explicitly address, you know, what those traumas were and then how to get beyond them. Um, And in, in being taught to keep them silent then you just shove them so far down that they eat away everything else. And I think like in terms of how that's showed up in our parent or our experience with them parenting, my mom is what you would call a helicopter mom. I think probably growing up, like because of her own fear of any of those terrible things happening to us, she was very, very, very involved. And Well, I think I wanted to do every single thing I could to make sure that Sarah didn't have those experiences, but not recognizing that in doing that, I really have, you know, continued and propagated some of the trauma uh, through silence. Yeah. And I don't really resonate with the silence because like I knew and heard the stories really young. What do you mean by silence? Not being able to um, put words to the pain and the processing and being able to speak about them in a way that actually productively moved forward. Yeah. I mean, it, that took a long time to get there. Yeah. No, I didn't see any healthy coping. But also, you didn't see any healthy coping. Grandma sure as fuck didn't see any healthy coping. Yeah. How, how can you learn these coping mechanisms, especially your generation and older? It wasn't like these were common conversations to have, right? Like you didn't talk about healthy coping mechanisms because people didn't talk about mental health like we do now. Right. Well, and mom's sibling set was very much like (laughs) y'all were the talk of the town in a small community. Yeah. We were messed up family, right? And everybody knew it and everybody spoke about us. And yeah. So it was just kind of this unspoken, like, I imagine some of the kids were just like, well, fuck it. I'm going to take this identity on anyways, because what else am I supposed to do? And I don't have any tools. And I think the older boys, my older brothers, after my parents divorced, 
the oldest three just went off on their own. And they one brother got married at 15. One brother was in and out of jail, you know, most of his teenage years and drugs and alcohol and relationships. Like that was how they processed and an inability to be able to explicitly art- articulate what their experiences were. And then mom got removed. So mom was the only one that was raised with grandma and I, grandpa. I was put into a foster home when I was 13, lived in a foster home for a period of time, but that caused a lot of challenges for the four sibling set, the younger kids. So two brothers and my little sister, they felt like I abandoned them by going to the uh, foster's cares and then moving in with my dad after that. Was there a reason that you were the only one removed? Because you're the middle child, right? And if this question is inappropriate. I, um, well, I kind of ran away. Um, then we hid for 24 hours. And so yeah. then I was taken from the family and placed in foster care. In a different state? In the state where I had left. So I oh, left okay. Oregon and came to Washington. And then I was placed into the foster system in Oregon. So, you know, what's really weird about all of this is that like, I was just in my ADD assessment the other day and, you know, you have to do the first 90 minutes of just like background. And I give my, like my trauma life story, you know, like three uncles died by suicide, multiple sexual assaults, you know, all these diagnoses, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like drugs and alcohol and all of these things. And I'm like, nobody's ever like this therapist is going to think I am so dramatic. Nobody's ever going to like, believe me. And then I think like, you should hear my mom's stories. Nobody is going to believe these. But then like, y'all should really hear grandma's stories. Those are the ones you don't. Well, and my grandmother's stories as well. Right. So it goes back at least five generations. Like I grew up young hearing stories about like my great grandmother, who was the best ever like fucking what a lady um but she was in a really 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 abusive marriage and he was practicing polygamy so there was several wives and when he was mad at grandma he wouldn't feed those kids it was he had a lockbox for when he would go hunting and there was food in there and she used to sneak in there and try to get some of the food and he would take some of the wives and some of the kids out to eat but my great grandma and her kids my mom's mom and her siblings outside while the rest of them got fed. And my grandma has an eighth grade education. And I remember when in the summertime, when we were kids going to the Danner, like boot Danner boot factory, it's like a sweatshop where (laughs) straight up where my grandma made boots for 30 or 40 years. My mom was the first one in her family to get a college degree. I'm the only child who's gotten a college education. Wow. That is always so impressive to me because like, yeah, my family just, they all have degrees. And so it's like my partner's family, same, like they don't have, he's the only one in his family that has a degree. And it's just like that, that must've been really hard to, to do when like without parental support or family support. Yeah, I think the factor for me really was meeting my husband and that, you know, I had dropped out of college and then uh, through a series of events, one of 
the condition before we got married was that I go back to school. I don't love the word condition. I know we could change that. Um, but he would have married me. Yeah. But he really wanted mom to like, I think he said, yeah, he said something along the lines of like, really want you to do something meaningful with your life and God forbid anything ever happened. Right. Like he wanted you to be able to stand on your own. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's like a bad condition, right? Like I, you know, he would have married me even if I hadn't <laughs> gone back to school, but he did want me to go back to school because he knew it was a dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of this stuff, it's so weird because like my childhood in terms of my relationship with my parents, while I was like unable to securely attach. And I believe that that is not for lack of trying on my parents' part. They just didn't have the skills that was going to make it easy to attach to someone like me. But my childhood was relatively stable. Mom and dad always been um, employed, tons of resources, access to good schooling. I had everything I wanted and needed, but the orbit around our four person unit was a, just a fucking shit show. (laughs) And it's hard for me to decipher whose trauma is whose, you know, like, is it my mom's trauma or is it my trauma? Because I heard all the stories and I watched all the traumas occur and I've taken a good responsibility for her emotional health and physical health. I remember the first time I really realized that something was different about Sarah when she was in fourth, fifth grade math, fourth grade math. Fuck, math was so hard. And I was trying to help her with homework. And um, she got so angry that she couldn't understand it. And I could not comprehend how trying to do math problems got us to where we got in that moment. And I realized this is something more than just struggling with math. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't remember, I just remember anger and fear. I don't remember. I'm sure you tried to be tender and hold me. I'm sure, but I didn't, I don't, all of those years where I was so angry, I don't remember it being met with a tenderness that I remember just it being met with a lot of fear. And my dad is a lot softer now than he's ever been, but he was kind of scary growing up. Like he had a big bark. I think dad was raised by a man who was a violent father. And so he, you know, he had edges that were harder, but he was never violent. And, you know, he, he never learned how to be able to speak about emotions and didn't know how to ask about emotions. So there were things, you know, that he didn't have in that moment and has learned some over time. Some, but I will say, I think that's one of the BPD things, right? Is that the, the way we interpret information is 10 times bigger and different than the way people intend to. So it could be like harsh from someone. And to us, that feels like the end of the world. You hate me. I'm not worthy of being your child. I need to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And I also think that when we're in the thick of it, we don't see the tenderness. We just see somebody trying to change us, which makes us feel like we are a bad person. Cause like, I, I think now about 
the things that my mom was trying to do for me. And I don't think that any of them were out of like malicious intent, but they sure felt like it when at the time, like I hated everything she tried to do for me, but in hindsight, she didn't know how to deal because I didn't know how to deal. And it just escalated. Um, And I think. Can I just say, you just said something that is so fucking triggering to me. My mom would say growing up, Sarah, it doesn't matter what I say to you. You won't hear it. And that is like one of the most triggering things. Like Tori would say that to me sometimes. I think Andrew said that to me once. And I was like, like 20 years of trauma around this statement, because it's not, it wasn't for lack of, it it wasn't for lack of wanting to hear them. And it wasn't lack of mom saying them. There was just this huge divide in the middle that made it unable for us to meet because of my emotions that couldn't calm down. But do you think that in hindsight, that was true? Cause I, for me, I do think that that was true for myself as a kid. Yeah. Because yeah. I know she said them. Yeah. And I, I think like, I didn't hear them because my subjective units of distress were too high. Yeah. And that's, another... I didn't know that. I didn't have that language. No, of course not. And like, I, I, that's where radical acceptance comes in because you have to like tell yourself okay, well, at the time I wasn't a terrible person. I just didn't know how to deal. And I didn't know how to hear that. It's not that I was a bad person. Um, I also think that like part of that lack of insight when you're in the thick of things is a characteristic of BPD or a personality disorder in general, right? Is like, I don't agree with the fact that um, people say like personality disorders affect the people around you more than yourself, because I don't think people that have ever said that haven't have experienced what what a shit show internally a personality disorder feels like. Jesus Christ. But I do think that like, we also probably can't understand how much it's impacting the people around us either. So I think it goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, I single-handedly destroyed this family growing up. I will say that for sure. I don't think we have been destroyed. I mean, I think that there were difficulties, but the difficulties came in from lots of angles. Yeah. It was not just you. There were lots of traumas that impacted our lives. Sure. I remember a time when I was 16 and my mom and I got into it really bad and she left and she was like going to get a hotel or something. And she told my dad that she couldn't raise his daughter anymore. And my dad sat me down, cried. This was like one of the first time I ever saw my dad cry. And he said, if my wife leaves me because of you, you need to get out of here. And I like, it was right around the Spencer time. So um, I re- I do remember feeling that sense of like something about me that I cannot control will be, will be the thing that is removed if it means mm. getting this family together. And it, it very easily in my life felt like me against them. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I feel that in my family as well. So Sherry, it you, it's your three brothers that have died by suicide. Yes. Or, yeah. I assume that that adds so much fear to you and I'm sure all of the rest of your family when Sarah is suicidal, which is just like a natural. I haven't really talked to my mom about it a lot. Well, I'm aware of it. Yeah. I recognize it. I mean, that is like a part of my life that I feel like I cannot share with her. Like, well, why do you think you did the stay alive podcast? I mean, Sarah, I, I recognize that it's real. 
and that it's forever present for you. Yeah, but I feel like my number one responsibility in the world is to stay alive for you. I wish it was to stay alive for you. That's not where I'm at right now, but like my entire life feels like the responsibility to not make her hurt anymore than she's been hurting. I was Which, really young when I first wanted to die. Do you remember um, at the old house, we had this day bed across the back wall. It was right around the time grandma um, Gay got diagnosed with cancer. Probably I was pretty young. Okay. And I like wrote into the day bed. Okay. I want to kill myself. I like scratched and this is the most angsty. If you can listen to this from the perspective of this angsty child and get out of the fact that it's really devastating, that it's this seven or eight year old child. Um, it's just so funny and angsty, but I wrote into the bed. I want to kill myself. And I remember you found it and we scratched it off all the way over it, but we haven't really talked about it. And I've, my first thoughts really that I recall from childhood are wanting to die and hearing like screaming voices inside my head. I wanted to die as a child too, sir. I think that it's like something we share. And even if right now, Sarah, you're not at the point where you want to stay alive for yourself, you wanting to stay alive for somebody else is a great protective factor. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm good with it. I feel like I've made peace with like that. I, my responsibility is to stay. And while I'm here, like there's going to be, I'm going to do a fuckload of good, right? Like I made a ton of peace with the fact that I don't want to live for me. And every single day I still want to die. Um, but like in between that, there's a lot of good that happens and there's a lot of joy and I've formed like some really cool connections and whatever. And that could change. Absolutely. Right. Like it could. It's going to have to, because my mom's sick. You're not going to live forever. And we have faced that like in the stroke, in the fuck four inch, four centimeter hole in your heart right now. Like it's not a hole. It's an aneurysm. Okay. She always tries to die on a Friday afternoon. And I'm like, I get stuck in traffic trying to get home to fucking see her in the hospital. What did you want to ask me about my brother's? (laughs) No, I, we actually, we got there anyways. uh, And I really hope you don't die because you seem like a very lovely person. Um, Basically what I was going to ask was, is it like extra triggering for you because of all of that family trauma that you've experienced those losses from that manner? I think um, it's actually interesting because it, I have all of this like hyper awareness of suicidality. And I had a, a, one of my students come into my office last week and talk to me um, about his own suicidal ideation. And like, I have, I believe that through my losses, I, I'm committed to try to talk to people about suicidal ideation and to, you know, tell them it's okay to talk about it and that there are not solutions, but staying alive is the best option. And that is incredible because suicidality is so common, right? Like not even, not even for just people with BPD, like obviously for people with BPD, it's like a huge factor in our lives, but you know, I'm sure there are probably half of your students, if not more have experienced suicidal ideation at some point in their childhood and, and yourself like being open about that 
Um, again, like that's where we can't necessarily just like take away trauma that we've experienced, especially intergenerational trauma, but using that trauma to try and help others in the future is obviously what you're doing. Um, and that doesn't have to be like, that's not a responsibility that you have to have. And I know that I think sometimes that sits with Sarah in interesting ways, um, like feeling like not wanting to kind of be res- like, have to use this pain to help people, if that makes sense. Um, but if you can do that by sharing, then that's really important and beautiful and helping other people. What the fuck else am I going to do with it? When you think about our careers, mom became a teacher because of the trauma of not feeling loved in childhood. I became a social worker because I saw my first suicide at 12, um, very graphically and, um, you know, really understood the impact of that in our family unit. Like all of the generational traumas really didn't affect me cognitively a lot until I was 12 years old. And then everything in my life changed and everything in your life changed. So, um, you know, I think if I wasn't exposed to those things, I would have been like, I would have probably have done something really creative with my life, but I, I mean, I went to college to try to figure out what the fuck was wrong with me. You know, doesn't everybody with a psych degree go to college to figure out what the fuck is wrong with them? Like seriously. And yet somehow I have my first college degree at 17, but I didn't get diagnosed with BPD until 23. That's bullshit. I mean, you would, you would have had other things going on for you at the time, I'm sure. But, um, so just kind of noting the time here, Sherry, I feel like we could talk literally forever. Um, but I have questions about your husband and not to drag him into this, but I know that you, you and Sarah's relationship is really close and it's getting closer and closer. Um, and that for Sarah, having a diagnosis of BPD and having some of these thoughts and feelings has a lot of shame associated with it, which I think she would talk about. Um, and I think some of that for me, at least like as an outsider looks like it shows up in not wanting to have this diagnosis shared, um, which is kind of ironic given what we do. Um, but it sounds like she's never talked to your husband about, or her dad about her diagnosis. And I wonder Sherry, if you talk to him about, um, what, what Sarah's going through and, and the stuff that she does. I talked a lot to him about learning about BPD and he's actually done a lot of research on his own to try to better understand it. And I do a lot of coaching conversations about how, how to talk with Sarah in ways that validate how she sees the world and experiences the world. From my perspective, I have seen growth in his ability to acknowledge the impact of BPD and try to find ways to navigate relating with Sarah, while maybe not explicitly speaking about the psychological impact of the diagnosis, finding ways to help him foster a relationship that can be productive and supportive with Sarah. 
Yeah. And I mean, super, he has like big time. I think one of the things that was really hard for me with my dad is like, you know, we talk about like textbook or classic borderline, right? Like I am just fucking check, check, check. And he, I, I mean, there's no way for a person that doesn't have this disorder to understand impulsivity, but I felt a lot of shame about my impulsive choices um, growing up, especially when I was like in my late teens, early twenties from my dad, like impulsively stretching my ears and getting tattoos and all of flaming red hair, changing my hair, like all of those things that they just thought were like, what the fuck are you doing? And I wanted to be like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I can't stop. You know, um, I felt a lot of shame about that growing up, but I, I think my dad really is trying. Um, although I'll say, you know, like he just doesn't, again, there's just no way to understand, but um, not too long ago, he, <laughs> some, I, something about Prozac came up and he was like, I would just never want you to be dependent on that, you know? And I wanted to be like, bro, I was on Prozac when I was 17. Like that's some baby SSRI shit. Like I'm at the max dose of Zoloft, my dude. And I've got a PRN anti-anxiety and I have a medication that I take for attention. Like Prozac is, we're a decade past Prozac yeah, and I'm going to be on Zoloft the rest of my life or some sort of SSRI the rest of my life if I'm going to stay alive. But I think you have to acknowledge that doesn't recognize positive benefit of that. And even yeah. in his own processing and his own emotional and mental and psychological well-being, he uses avoidance techniques to not directly and explicitly acknowledge some of the challenges he has Big time. that could be helped by yeah. some medication if he ever went and talked to a doctor about anything. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's medication has such a big stigma to it. My, when I was a kid, my mom, my parents were divorced and my mom had to like hide medication when I switched between houses because my dad was so against medication. And to be honest, I think if you were to ask him today, he'd be like, well, I wish you didn't have to take it, but it's your call. Um, and I, I think like, yes, we're an over-medicated society for sure. Um, but also medication helps us and it kept me alive. So I, I feel like at the end of the day, if your dad was like, well, would I rather have a daughter who wasn't functioning or a daughter who's on Prozac, he would he sure. choose Prozac, right? Well, and I think like, even when you were younger and we actually tried to get you on medication as a teenager, you- I don't remember that. It was after the, uh, you went into the hospitalization. Oh yeah. And I was tried, on Prozac. We tried to get you regulated on medication. You wouldn't take the medication consistently. You would like go off it because, you know, so it was so hard to see the positive impact of a consistent, consistent medication. Yeah. Well, and a big piece of that is that I just still hadn't gotten my BPD sure. diagnosis. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, totally. like, I don't, I don't think we really understood what we were medicating, but yeah, I had a ton of self-stigma around meds and did not want to take them for the longest time. And now like I I would be afraid for what my life would look like if I was not consistently medicated right now. But I still have self-stigma about medication. Like I take medication and I've been taking medication since I was a kid essentially, but every once in a while, I still have that internal shame about that. Like why, why, why can't you just like 
create serotonin. <laughs> Get over it. I don't know. Right. <laughs> you just, you just posted about that when you were on your vacation and you went to try to get an updated. Oh yeah. Right. And they wouldn't give it to you because you were so young. So like society doesn't help us just normalize the process. And I work in was this a Facebook post. It was a Facebook story. Oh, and okay. Sherry is very observant and clearly has. A I great told memory. you she's the I, mom for moms, dude. She wanted this job. I love it. I always collect moms. So if you would like a new daughter, <laughs> my name is Lori. <laughs> well, she uh, did buy you the Brene Brown book. Oh, yeah. Did you send it to her? No, I haven't. I have to send her earrings too. So maybe <gasps> I did that. Well, I had packaged them up and I asked you what your address was because I forgot. And then um, I had already dropped off the other earrings. So, but I'm going to get them sent to you this Ooh, week. I'm excited. Um, yeah, they're cute. Oh, of course they're cute. All of them are cute. Um, Can I give you guys some feedback? Yeah, of course. Having this third point person in this process has really facilitated a much more productive and meaningful conversation for me and helped me feel a lot more comfortable talking. So like having Lori be the, the touchstone has been super helpful. Well, good. I'm glad. I've also been watching my maladaptive use of humor because it doesn't always feel very validating to my mom, I don't think. So I've tried not to make too many inappropriate jokes. That is a very hard skill and I don't have it. So nor do I try very hard to be fair. So that's probably my bad. Um, I appreciate that feedback and I'm glad that you felt comfortable because I had nothing prepared. So, um, neither did we. And, and my mom was like, um, because I had a session right before this and I wanted to talk before that, but I, you saw me, like, I was like, I got a nap. Like I have to, I need a hard reset. And so I wasn't able to like really have a sit down with her and say like, this is what to expect. So I know that that probably increased your anxiety and I'm sorry, but turned out pretty well. I love you. I love you too. I love you both. And I don't even know you. (laughs) Um, You actually remind me so much of my aunt who lives in Salem, which is really funny. I don't know what it is about you, but maybe it's like a subtle accent or something. But uh, if I'm ever down every once in a while there's like a little bit of an american accent there and then oh really yeah 100 all right well um last words sherry for this episode before we wrap up i think you guys are having a huge impact on a group of people who haven't often felt seen and valued and loved so super proud of you thanks mom i love you Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.